This episode is brought to you by Anchor. Anchor is Preg Your Pardon's favorite podcast growth and distribution platform. And the best part, it's free. If you're thinking about starting a podcast, maybe you should consider Anchor. If you're interested, you can download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Once again, you can download that free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hello, PYP listeners. I'm Gailey McDougall, pronouns she, her, licensed midwife and moderator of this little podcast. Welcome to this episode where we'll be talking about a subject that doesn't get a lot of attention out loud. It's something we don't discuss very often. Well, we don't discuss it seriously anyway. We joke about it. We share memes about it. We decorate our homes with funny pillows about it, celebrate it, and proudly wear merch that identifies our membership in this growing club. But what I'm talking about is the mommy wine culture. Over the last decade, there has been a gaining popularity in the acceptance and celebration of mommy needs wine culture. There are Facebook groups with names like mommy needs wine and mommy wine time trends that encourage referring to wine as mommy's juice box instead of alcohol. It's ever present at parent gatherings, reinforced in popular culture, and emblazoned on clothing with phrases like wine o'clock and moms are like wine, they make everything better. Wine is increasingly marketed to and consumed by women, specifically moms, because they carry disproportionate levels of parenting stress resulting from decades worth of discriminatory hiring practices, gender pay inequalities, and persistent sexist caregiving expectations. So women can often be an easy target for ad agencies and wine especially are often marketed toward mothers with labels for feminine appeal. A recent article by USA Today found that 57% of all wine sales in the United States are now to women, a trend that has just shifted in the last decade. The relatability of motherhood as a shared experience makes the concept of using alcohol as a coping mechanism seem very innocent and even healthy. From my personal observation, some of the healthiest people I know, the ones who exercise and eat really clean foods and seemingly care for their bodies really, really well in every other way, use alcohol very regularly, very casually, and often in high amounts. The contradiction is almost unexplainable, so I really want to try to crack the case. So today, we are going to have an honest conversation with a healthcare professional who also identifies as a mom and has personal experience with alcohol use disorder that was greatly exacerbated by the chaos of the postpartum period that so many moms can probably relate to. Side note to our listeners, today I will be using the terms mom and mommy because in this particular context, the conversation will revolve specifically around the mommy needs wine culture. We do know that dads and parents that don't identify as mom or mommy also struggle with alcohol use disorder and other substance use disorders. But this specific episode and our guest's specific experience revolves around identifying as a mom using the specific substance of alcohol. I hope you'll understand the exclusive nature of the language in this particular episode. 
Content warning, we will be discussing the use of alcohol and touching on mental health disorders in very plain terms on today's podcast. If those subjects are triggering for you, we ask that you please be kind to yourself and choose another one of our episodes. I'll also add some resources and articles in the show notes for anyone who wants to take a deeper dive or needs any supportive resources for themselves or someone they love. So... We are very excited to have with us Hannah Doyle. Hannah is a mother of two under two while working part-time as a registered nurse. Hannah offers insight into how alcoholism affects pregnancy, breastfeeding, and motherhood. Her personal trials with alcohol abuse help to highlight the impact alcohol can have on both motherhood and mental health from the early postpartum period to years after. So without further ado... Please help us welcome Hannah Doyle to the podcast. Hi. Hi. It's so nice to have you here. How are you doing? I'm good. I was actually just like listening to everything that you were saying and it's just, you just summed it up so well. Like it's just crazy how many stats are out there and just like, I don't know, it's just crazy to think about like how much information is out there and what a true like club this is and just nobody talks about it. Like Mm -hmm. it has just become such a normal thing in our culture that it's just, I don't know, it's crazy to me. Yeah. And I, we can get into this later, but I feel like I really started seeing it more prevalent probably in this last decade. Really? Um, Even like, and maybe it was just more hidden before that, but I feel like growing up, I really didn't notice like my mom and her friends sort of have that that culture out loud at least. I mean, I was raised Catholic and we definitely had like wine at all of our like celebrations and beer mm-hmm. and, you know, there was always right. alcohol socially, but this context specifically that revolves around moms and play dates and all of that, yeah. I never remember that. And even like yes. my early parenting, I have two older boys who are in their mid-20s to late-20s, and then I have a younger child who's 15, and I feel like it was really after having him and kind of getting back into, like, the mom groups that I noticed, like, oh, this is really different than it used to be. I also feel like just alcohol itself has become so much more prevalent in the past like decade. I mean, you think about all of these breweries that are opening and these wine bars and wineries and, you know, they have like little playgrounds and stuff like set up in them for your kids. So you can go and you can drink Mm -hmm. and you can hang out and then, you know, you can watch your kids playing and you can just like hang out there all day. And I feel like that was not a thing 10 years ago. And Mm -hmm. so it's just become such a normalized part of our society to just have alcohol and like hang out and that be like your thing to do over the weekend. Yeah. So it's just, yeah, I feel like it's just become so much more of a thing. So we're going to get into sort of the whole trajectory of what led us sitting here together in this yeah. little podcast office yes. talking about this. But can we go back to like your, even your childhood and like what was your um, your context as a child? Like what did you see as a child as far as what was mirrored to you? So I actually never saw alcohol as a child. Um, my mom never drank And then when my parents got married, I was around middle school age and my dad adopted me. 
Um, he also never drank. So I think I was like 16 or 17 years old before I saw either one of them like have a first drink at like a birthday party or something, mm-hmm. like one of their birthdays. And so I also feel like, you know, as a sub issue, you have to still like have that conversation about alcohol with your children, even if, you know, it's not something that you regularly consume or that you keep in the house, et cetera. Because even just like the absence of alcohol mm-hmm. and just the absence of that conversation can still be problematic. Like mm-hmm. if it's something that's so prevalent in society today, you've got to have the conversation about mm-hmm. it. Um, mm-hmm. So it really wasn't until I went away to college when I was 18 um, in Florida. I lived about two and a half hours away from my parents in Gainesville. And the University of Florida, like a lot of the other state schools and big universities, is that's all you do in college is drink. You know, game days, you wake up at 8 a.m. drinking, you go to bed at 10 p.m. drinking, you wake up the next morning and you have your hair of the dog drink for your hangover. And that's just what you do, you know, Sunday to Sunday. Mm -hmm. You go to class hungover and then you come home and you have another drink. Mm -hmm. And so that's really where it started for me was in college. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and that is different. I'm just thinking about my own college experience because my husband and I had our first child really young, and so we were in college raising a baby, mm-hmm. and we alternated our schedule so that we could yeah. all be home with our baby, right. and then we worked nights, and we alternated that, and we didn't really participate in a lot right. of like the normal stuff, even though yeah. like we lived on the campus of UT Knoxville, mm-hmm. so it was all around us. And if we wanted to, we could participate very easily, and sometimes we did, but it wasn't like normal. It was like right. a special occasion. It was right. like funny that you mentioned Florida. It was like the UT Florida game. Yeah, that's what was yeah. going to you know. Of course, we were going to be drinking. Right. Um. And so, but it it wasn't as normal for us, and so I think. Because I'm just trying to figure out how how I missed all of that, and then it popped into my life later on. And so for me, it didn't start with college. Um, and then, of course, we were, like, raising our kids and going to school. And so, like, there just really wasn't opportunity. Yeah, there wasn't time mm-hmm. And it. so maybe that's another reason why when we had Casey 10 years later, and we were older, and I was, like, seeing, like, my 30-year-old friends having their first baby Mm -hmm. and everybody wanted to like do play dates or even book club. It didn't even really matter what kind of gathering. It was, there was always alcohol. There's always wine specifically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or like, what can I bring? Do you need anything? Oh, just bring a bottle of wine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So, So the messaging around, it sounds like the messaging around alcohol too for you growing up, it was either there was no alcohol, but then you saw your parents drink like at a birthday party. Mm-hmm. So it was, the messaging was like, this is okay socially. Yeah, definitely more of a social thing or like, you know, an event surrounded thing. And even then, like they would have like a single drink. Like anytime I would come home from college, like for winter break, you know, I would buy beer while I was down and then I would put it in their fridge And then I wouldn't visit again for like another two to three months and it would still be sitting in there and they're like, please get this out. Like we need the room. (laughs) So like they really never drank. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So when, when did things change for you? Like as far as your relationship with alcohol? I think 
the biggest change for me was when I started working as a nurse, which Mm -hmm. is like another sub-issue, like healthcare providers and alcohol consumption. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, it started when I was in college and I got my ASN and immediately started working. Like I just kind of flew through college and then straight into the workforce. Um, I didn't end up getting my BSN until later when I had time. But, you know, we would all, I worked nights in the ER and so... We would do our three in a row or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. We would typically work with, like, the same people. Um, And then there was a bar in Gainesville that would open at 7 a.m. for healthcare workers that Mm -hmm. worked nights. And Mm -hmm. so we would all go there and we'd have breakfast and we'd have drinks. And, you know, this is people ranging through a lot of different ages. There's techs that were still, like, 18, 19 years old. There was Mm -hmm. us that were nurses or residents in mm-hmm. their late 20s. There was attending physicians there that were in their 40s, 50s. So it was everyone. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. it wasn't just like a certain age group. And we would all binge drink and mm-hmm. we would all be doing shots at 8 a.m., which was like our 8 p.m. And then we all had families. We all had things to lose. And we would, you know, jump in our cars and go home exactly. and sleep yeah. our four to five hours and then come back and work again. Mm-hmm. And you know, that was what was normal, Yeah. you know? So it's just, it's funny how it just impacts a spectrum of people. Like it doesn't really matter the age group in that instance, Mm -hmm. um, but it's just like the stress of like healthcare. And so, I mean, you add in the stress of healthcare and then the stress Mm -hmm. of being a parent as well. And, you know, other things going on just with medicine that just, I guess, push people towards alcohol because that's, what everybody says is your stress relief. Like it's such a stress relief. Like I can't wait to go home and have a beer. Like I can't blah, 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 blah. So. And it's so contradictory because you really do hear the messaging around that all the time. And as healthcare providers, we also see the damage that Mm -hmm. that does in real life, in real time. But there is something, this would probably be a whole different podcast, but you're exactly right. I mean, it's so prevalent in the health care industry too because and it's very silent also it's kind of like this low-key behind the scenes like I mean I remember I went to Vanderbilt and I remember in nursing school like you said all ages there were people that were like just fresh out of their um their graduate program I mean their undergraduate program so like 20 years old, Mm -hmm. maybe. And then there were some of us who were maybe mid-20s. There were older students there, professors, like our professors there. There were people that were already residents. And across the street from Vanderbilt, there's like San Antonio Taco Company. Mm -hmm. And that was a really popular place to go, like after clinicals or after a long day. And just like you say, like it's like all these people who are like responsible for like your grades and your life and just everybody totally just binging and drinking and getting in their cars and, you know, and as someone who was like really young and impressionable, I mean, I definitely saw that and thought, okay, so, I mean, I didn't think about it at the time in like those words, but I know that the messaging was like, we're responsible and we're professionals and it's okay. Or there's like yes. some kind of permission yep. that overrides yes. what we we know yep. is right and wrong. And I think there's some aspect of that with mothers mm-hmm. doing that too. Like we're responsible for these human beings, but like we're sort of overriding that yeah. when it comes to alcohol. Or I spent, you know, this many hours <clears throat> throughout the day being responsible, so now it's time for my glass of wine. Yeah, and, like it's you know, a You deserve it, mom. Like that's, mm-hmm. you know, it's wine o'clock for mom. And mm-hmm. 
Yeah. yeah, it's definitely just a growing thing with moms. So you went from drinking in college um, in a pretty, like, normal, but when we talk about, like, within normal limits of anything, it's like the high end of normal maybe. And then drinking professionally with your peers. And so you probably, what, built up a tolerance. Mm-hmm. You, it, so... And then, and then, how did that trajectory continue? <clears throat> Sorry, my gosh, <clears throat> both my kids are sick, and so I feel like we all have post nasal drip. It's disgusting. Um, so sorry if I'm clearing my throat every five seconds. You're fine. But <clears throat> um, so I actually so kind of moving through like from college to you know profess- professional, like getting into motherhood. Like when I. I even, this is like terrible. So, I mean, this is like the true, like this is raw, like Mm, life. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I remember when I found out I was pregnant, I had to be like, geez, like maybe five and one, Mm -hmm. five and two, Mm -hmm. like five weeks, two days. Like I, it was the faintest line on a pregnancy test. And I remember thinking like, I'm going to tell my husband tonight, but I need to have my one last beer before Mm -hmm. I can't drink, you know, Mm -hmm. for nine months. Like it's fine. Like it's just an idiot tiny little egg, like it won't hurt, blah, blah, blah. And like, you know, that's such a stark, mm-hmm. like, you know, exclamation point for like how bad alcoholism is. Like, make sure you get your last beer or your last glass of wine before mm-hmm. you're pregnant, like mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Or, you know, people that are planning on getting pregnant, like they're like, let's go on one last trip, like to Europe, you know, where we can go visit the vineyards and we can have all of this wine before we start trying. Like mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of like peers doing things like that. And it's like, holy cow, like you're going to binge over these last couple weeks, last couple months, just, you know, for mm-hmm. absence of nine to 10 months, like mm-hmm. it's just crazy. So, and then even when I was pregnant after I hit 20 weeks, mm-hmm. um, I would have an occasional glass of wine Mm -hmm. because, you know, you hear like, oh, it's just one. It's okay. Like Mm -hmm. everything's developed. You've had your anatomy scan. Like the odds of that affecting the pregnancy, you know, are so low. And just doing that, like thinking back to, you know, when I would have the occasional glass of wine when I was pregnant, like that's just crazy. Like I was so far like in alcoholism and you know, I don't like the term alcoholic. I think mm-hmm. that it's got a really negative connotation. Like it's just over the years has developed a really negative connotation. And so people don't really want to use it to label themselves. But, you know, thinking back, I I was an alcoholic and that's, you know, what it was. Like you don't have to be waking up and, you know, drinking an entire handle of vodka to be an alcoholic. And right. I feel like that's what people think yeah. being an alcoholic is. Like, not being able to go through an entire pregnancy without having a glass of wine, like that's alcoholism, like that's suffering from alcoholic tendencies. And so just like thinking about that. um, And I remember when I ended up did having complications with the pregnancy towards the end, which, you know, I was assured was not from the occasional glass of wine, but still the guilt that I felt from that. Mm -hmm. Um, I was like, you know, if I hadn't have had those glasses of wine or if I had just been able to wait 10 months, like, you know, would this have happened? And of course she ended up perfect and fine, but it's just like, that was kind of the first eye opener to me that 
I really was suffering from the alcoholism and mm-hmm. that almost made me just like want to drink more to like forget about it. Mm-hmm. Like, especially when the postpartum depression and the postpartum anxiety started kicking in. And I knew that I was predisposed to it just because I had been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder prior to pregnancy. But I guess my husband and I talked about just like all the ways we were going to cope with it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can have a perfect plan and you can have all the steps and everything set out in front of you. And then postpartum comes around, steps on it, balls it up and chucks it out the window. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and then you're just like kind of left hanging out to dry. You don't really know what to do. And Mm -hmm. when you're in like the depths of postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety, you want to do anything to feel better. And so that's when I really started diving into binge drinking. And I was at home with my daughter by myself you know, almost every single day my husband was in his fellowship. Um, and so he was working a lot of hours. He was working, you know, five days a week, if not six days a week, if he was on call. Mm -hmm. And so it would be all day of me feeling anxious and feeling depressed and being at home with this little baby that I was struggling to bond with Mm -hmm. because, you know, you don't always bond with your babies Mm -hmm. right away and that's okay. But the way that you cope with it, there's an okay and there's not an okay. And so you know, I'm just staring at this crying baby that I'm like trying to develop emotions for and trying to figure out this motherhood role. And then I'm just waiting for my husband to get home. And so of course, as soon as he gets home, here's the baby, I'm going to go have a glass of wine, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. type of thing. Yeah. And so, you know, you mix all of that in with breastfeeding and it's tough because, you know, you have all of this information that shows how little alcohol actually gets into breast milk. And they usually tell you if you're okay to drive, you're okay to nurse. And it's like, there's really just not a lot of studies that show how much alcohol truly gets into breast milk. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they sell those strips over the counter where you can dip your own milk to see if it's, and it's just like, you know, they just give you all of these things to make it okay to binge drink and then nurse. Mm -hmm. And so you're just like, so here I am like timing my drinks to try to nurse her and dipping my milk if I'm pumping to make sure that Mm -hmm. it's okay and just, Mm -hmm. you know, doing all of these things to make it, quote, okay to be drinking as much as I was while nursing. But Mm -hmm. I'm still a good mom because, you know, I am making sure that my milk is okay and I'm still nursing my daughter. And, you know, that's not really getting to the root of the problem. Mm -hmm. So... That is kind of when things got tough. And Mm -hmm. I remember it was just getting, you know, worse and worse. I was, we would go out drinking on like a Thursday night out Mm -hmm. at the brewery. I would have like five beers Mm -hmm. and then, you know, drive home. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my husband is raising alarm bells left and right. Like, you know, I think you're drinking too much. You know, I, I don't think that you need to be driving. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I don't even feel comfortable driving. He would have like a beer or two and he's like, I don't feel comfortable driving after mm-hmm. that. Like, you know, can I drive? Yes, but still, I don't know what my alcohol volume is. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is our entire life. Like yeah. we've got a lot to lose. Like we've got our licenses to lose. We've got our lives to lose, our daughter to lose. And none of that even like scathed me because yeah. I was just like, so just in a tunnel, like tunnel vision for feeling stress relief, mm-hmm. for pushing that depression down, pushing that anxiety down. And I was being told all around me, that's okay. That's what mom does. Mom has her glass of wine, glasses of wine, and that's yeah. just how you cope. So, and hopefully it's okay if I 
touch on this a little bit. Yeah. You've already kind of mentioned it. Um, your husband is also a healthcare provider, yeah. and so also knew the signs that were all mm-hmm. taught in school, and and his scope is higher than ours even, so like probably even knew more than, you know, yeah. as far as just um, assessment. And so how how did that look just real life? Like how did that look between y'all conversations like early on? Did he have guilt for having to work and so he allowed, like maybe yeah. turned a blind eye to it? Or And I'm only asking this because... I really feel like this part is, and this is just from my experience as a midwife being in so many homes and, and working with so many families, I think this part is the part that so many people have in common that are going to hear this and really feel like she's talking about me, like did she yeah. read my diary? Because this is so common and, and your husband doesn't have to be a healthcare provider. Yes. Your family doesn't have to be in healthcare. Um this can happen to anybody. Like alcoholism is not, it doesn't discriminate. And so yes. can you touch on that a little bit more, just yeah. sort of how that played so, out? So I think it was tough for him because, you know, he's got so much medical information and knowledge being an anesthesiologist, but when it comes to birth and breastfeeding and the postpartum period, like that is, you know, so new for him. Like any knowledge that he has about that is from, you know, rotations in med school or, you know, placing epidurals and L and D like he just sees such an acute version of that. Mm -hmm. And so with how much information that I had working as a nurse and just being passionate about childbirth and like holistic childbirth, he kind of just deferred to my judgment. And he also did that just like as a way of respect, like he didn't want to be like, Oh, you know, I'm a doctor, I know more than you, so blah, blah, blah. He respectfully was like, you know, you know more information about breastfeeding than I ever could. You know more information about pregnancy than I ever could. And so I think he felt like his hands were tied behind his back. He didn't want to overstep and say, I don't think you should be drinking. I'm not comfortable with you drinking. Mm -hmm. You know, I do think that this is becoming a problem. Like, I do think that a lot of alcohol is getting into your breast milk. Like, I think that we should look at the studies together And so he kind of felt like he was stuck between a rock and a hard place with seeing what I was doing and knowing that it was not okay. Um, And then on the other hand, not wanting to like step on my toes and say, you know, I know a lot about this. I don't think that it's okay. And so any conversations he would have about it, of course, there's this underlying like shame and guilt in you who's you know, suffering from the alcoholism and is consuming so much alcohol, you immediately become defensive about it. And so Mm -hmm. any conversation we tried to have, I would be very defensive about it. Like, oh, I'm being safe. I, you know, I've read all of this that says, you know, X, Y, Z, and I'm dipping my milk in the strips. Like I'm making sure that it's safe. Like, you know, I'm keeping track of my mental health. I already had anxiety. So what if it is increased? You know, that happens in postpartum. Mm -hmm. And so I was just like, all of these things just like trying to make it okay and just like trying to like throw it at him and say like what I'm doing is okay. And so it was emotionally very hard for him to just like watch me spiral. And I just wasn't thinking about it at the time because I was only thinking about myself. You become very selfish when it like comes down to it. And just like through our marriage counseling, when we've 
broken down like that period of life when I was just like truly like in the thick of it, just like hearing his point of view and hearing everything that he went through emotionally, like just like having to watch your partner, you know, destroy themselves, you know, in a quiet and accepted way Mm -hmm. in our society was very difficult for him. And, you know, that's also something I feel like a lot of people don't talk about either when it comes down to, you know, moms that are binge drinking. How do their partners feel? Mm -hmm. Are they participating in it with them? Which he almost felt like he was forced to Mm -hmm. because, you know, I was like, how are you just going to watch me like having all this wine or having all this beers? Like, come on, have fun with me, like drink with me. And so he was, you know, trying to do that in like such strict moderation because one of us had to be responsible. Right. And so that was just very hard for him because I was almost like peer pressuring him to like jump in this hole with me because I didn't want to be in there alone. Yeah. And so he emotionally really went through it. And then, you know, not to mention just like all of the things that come with you binge drinking, you know, you are just ridiculous. Like anybody that's super drunk, like you feel really embarrassed the next day of how you acted, the conversations Mm -hmm. that you had, the things that happened. And so, you know, just another aspect that I can get into a little bit later is just like the afterwards, like the next day when you wake up, what an impact that has on you. Mm -hmm. And so he was just, he really struggled during that time. I didn't realize that I wasn't just hurting myself. I was definitely hurting him as well. Yeah, so so you've actually covered several of my questions um, just in the conversation because I wanted to ask specifically about how, um, because I think, and this is just from my observational experience, but I think what I see a lot is um, a lot of my clients, they'll, they'll be really good during their pregnancies. Mm-hmm. They may have the wine after 36 weeks, you know, to kind of like ward off Braxton Hicks contractions mm-hmm. and that kind of yeah. thing. And and honestly, like midwives are very guilty of, you know, prescribing a glass of wine in an Epsom salt bath. Like that's really common. And so I think that we could also do a really a way better job of assessing history and really having honest, real conversations with people and making sure that we're not making um, recommendations that are completely inappropriate for certain people. But um But so what I see is, you know, people will, they'll be really good. And then right after delivery, it's like, that's kind of how they reward themselves. Oh yeah. Bring a bottle of wine. Bring bring a bottle bottle of of wine, champagne, champagne, all the things. And so, but then it doesn't really stop. And then like you're saying, it's just kind of part of that, like, oh my gosh, we got through this really crazy day and we're going to have some wine or we're going to have a beer or whatever it is. Um, but the breastfeeding and the alcohol drinking, we don't talk about that a lot. Like mm-hmm. we do all these assessments for tongue ties. We do all these assessments for weight gain. We do all these assessments for um, reflux and what's wrong with baby and eliminating dairy and eliminating grains and all these things. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, mom is having a glass of wine every night or mm-hmm. two or four. And so... Aside from the strips, because that's really interesting, you know, that there's actually tools to, like, assess how much alcohol is in your, you know. I mean, that's gosh, what a double-edged sword that that is. But how else did it affect your breastfeeding relationship? Like, do you feel like it decreased supply, decreased bonding? Do you feel like you skipped feedings? Is there any other 
Oh yeah, that's a whole nother problem. So we kind of struggled with breastfeeding to begin with. Um, we did the tongue and lip tie repair. You know, we were doing everything. We were at lactation, like I swear, every other day. Mm-hmm. Like they, pff, we could write a book with how much we had to go to lactation to try to get her on the breast. And, you know, that also played into how much stress it was when you've got a screaming baby on your boob and you're trying so hard to nurse and, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just not happening and you're so frustrated. So breastfeeding was already really stressful. So I feel like the way that I viewed it was, you know, a little bit different than somebody who had a perfect breastfeeding journey. Not that there is a perfect breastfeeding journey, but like somebody whose babies latched right away Mm -hmm. and they had no problems with supply. So I was exclusively pumping um, for about four to five months, and that's tough. If anybody's ever exclusively pumped, like, oh, my gosh, to be – thank God for wireless pumps now, but for the first couple of months I didn't have wireless pumps because they can be very pricey. But I was – to be attached to a wall every two hours, two to three hours as a newborn is feeding is just torture. Or you're, you know, you're carrying around your giant pack, your battery pack, and you've still got these phalanges sticking out a foot from your boobs and mm-hmm. you're trying to take care of a baby right. and do everything without spilling milk. Um, so all in all, it was very stressful and just like having to figure out when I could pump around like drinking and like being at the bar and like just pumping at the bar. And I was like, whatever, I'm a breastfeeding mom. Like this is what we do, yada, mm-hmm. yada, yada. Um, it like really just affected breastfeeding in that way. And then when I would drink too much, I would be like, oh, I need to pump and dump. And, or I would just, you know, be so drunk that I would fall asleep after going to the bar and I would wake up just totally engorged Mm -hmm. and just having leaked everywhere. And, you know, that's just such a disaster because then you're dealing with mastitis, you're dealing with clogged ducts. You know, when you're getting to the point of being that engorged, it doesn't affect your supply because you're not removing the milk. And so I was constantly struggling with supply. I was constantly struggling, you know, with clogged ducts. And I already have a pretty um, high, I don't know what the word is for it, but my ducts just get clogged really easily. And so um, I was constantly battling with that because I would be engorged all the time and you know, that's just, was a disaster. Like trying to figure out, is she getting enough? Trying to get back to the boob, you know, with me having all of these issues with ducts being clogged and flow and all of that. And alcohol was like the biggest proponent, you know, in our struggle with that. Mm. Okay. And so was there a moment? Was there, what was... What was finally like the last straw for you where you were like, I'm just done with this? Or was it more of a... So I kind of want to give a warning because this may be kind of triggering for people. So, you know, if there's anybody that kind of struggles with being triggered by suicidal thoughts or suicidal mentions or anything Mm -hmm. like that, like Mm -hmm. I just want to give like an extra warning. But um, just starting out, like... I came to figure out that nobody and nothing is going to make you stop until you want to stop. Mm -hmm. Like you are your biggest like enemy when it comes to alcoholism and suffering from alcohol. And so like all of these terrible things were happening with, you know, me and my husband, we were fighting more, you know, we 
had some like undisclosed events that, you know, happened, you know, around alcohol and him having to, you know, basically peel me off the sidewalk at bars Mm -hmm. when I would go out with my friends and just like being ridiculous. And none of that, you know, made me want to stop. It wasn't until Mm -hmm. like I had to like come to this like point in my life where I was like enough is enough. Mm -hmm. Like I'm going to lose my life over this. I'm going to lose my family over this. Like what is truly more important? And so the problem with one of the many problems with me with drinking was I would wake up the next day and my hangovers would be so emotionally severe. Like Mm -hmm. I would wake up, like basically the moment I opened my eyes, I would have a panic attack. Like my anxiety would be that bad. Mm -hmm. Like my heart would be racing. I would be sweating. Like I would be like scared out of my mind and I couldn't figure out why. And just that happened so many times. And every single time I swore like this is the last time. Yeah. I can't ever feel like this again. This is the last time, you know. Because in the morning, that's how it feels until the night. Yep. Mm -hmm. Until, you know, you say this is the last time until the next time. Yeah. And so all of that was going on. And I, we got into a really big fight one night um, that I was just like binge drinking and we had an event and some things happened and you know, I woke up the next day and my mom was actually in town and she was like, you know, what is going on with you? Like you're sitting here, you guys are screaming at each other. And like, if you know me and my husband, like we, we never fight. And Mm -hmm. when we fight, it is like therapeutic conversation. Like Mm -hmm. we are so just like a calm home is so important to us. Like Mm -hmm. we don't raise our voices at each other. We don't, you know, Mm -hmm. like the worst thing we'll do is be like quietly passive aggressive to each other. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so like- Well, like a little funny side story. I was telling Casey on the way here, he's my 15 year old who Mm -hmm. produces this little podcast. (laughs) And I was just telling him about you. And I said, you know, I love all my clients, but like, you know, Hannah's one of my favorite because um, her and her husband are just, they're just so kind and they're just compassionate people who really like know how to like really communicate well, talk through things. There's challenges that they went through and I just really like them a lot. So I just want to reiterate, like I've only known you sober, but you're exactly right. Like I would expect you to just be able to like communicate yeah, really yeah. efficiently and kindly and compassionately because that's what I've always seen. You know, sober me is one person and then, sure, you know, trashed me is another and Mm -hmm. so you know we're screaming at each other it's like one in the morning Mm -hmm. you know my daughter was only a few months old and my mom's like you're stumbling around this house like you're holding her I was scared you were gonna drop her you know you guys are screaming at each other and she's like and you always tell us like the second somebody raises their voice like in my house I'm like no (laughs) we're gonna shut that down like we're gonna squash that because we just value like such a calm environment and so she's like this is like this is not you like Mm -hmm. something's gotta give and my husband was at work that day which was like horrible because we just got into this explosive fight and then the next day he's got to go into work and be at work all day and so he and I like hadn't really talked and so I'm like already at like my lowest low just from being hungover and having like such severe anxiety 
And then on top of that, you know, my husband's not there. And so we're like separated and we're fighting and, you know, we're just, it was like an explosive fight. And so I remember like I was at the mall with um, my mom and my little sisters and I had my daughter with me and we were just like walking around and I was just like, you know, so hungover, trying not to throw up every five minutes, like feeling so depressed. And I remember sitting down while my sisters were trying on clothes and my mom was helping them. And I just like went into my notes app and I wrote my suicide note. Mm -hmm. And I remember just sitting there like, I'm like, I'm done. Like, I don't know Mm -hmm. how I can come back from this. I don't know how I can ever make things right again with my husband. Like, how do you move on past this? How do you get over everything that's happened? Mm -hmm. You know, how do I stop drinking so much? Like what's what's going to give? And I was like, nothing. Like, I can't do it. Like, I'm done. Like, my daughter doesn't deserve, you know, everything that's happened. My husband doesn't deserve everything that's happened. And so I'm, like, sitting there in the middle of this, like, Macy's. Right. <laughs> I'm just, like, writing this note. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm done. And so we got home. And, you know, I hadn't figured out the logistics of it. But I was just like sitting in my bath and I was just feeling so, so just low. I was like, I'm done. And my husband ended up coming home as I was like still sitting in the bath. And like something in me just like caved. And I told him like, I'm really done. Like I'm contemplating suicide. Like, And just like as a side note, like leading up to this, um, I had had some self-harm instances when I had been like really, really drunk Mm -hmm. and it wasn't anything crazy. Like, you know, I had cut myself a few times, but it wasn't anything that was intentional. Mm -hmm. And so my poor husband having to navigate everything, you know, with work and then on top of that, having to navigate like his wife, that's just like jumping off the deep end. And so just with him having... experienced and witnessed my self-harm attempts like he just took me very seriously even when I didn't take myself very seriously he was like you know we're done like this is done I don't know how we're gonna do it but we're gonna figure it out because I genuinely am scared that you are gonna commit suicide he's like just based on your history with anxiety and your history of depression and how quickly you have spiraled with this He's like, you know, what's happened has happened. We're going to put it in a box. We're going to close it up and we can worry about that later. He's like, I don't care, you know, everything that we've gone through at this point. I don't care what it says about our marriage. I don't care what it says about who we are as people. We're going to figure it out and then we can unpack that. And so I remember it was like a Tuesday at like 8 p.m. or something. Mm -hmm. Like it was just like a random day. And I left a message for my on-call midwife you know, expecting her to call me back the next day. And I swear it, it was just like the shortest message, like, Hey, you know, this is who I am. I just gave birth, you know, X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. Um, I am feeling very depressed. You know, I am maybe having some suicidal thoughts. I just wanted to reach out. Like I didn't even go into detail about anything. It was just like, yeah, so short and like sweet. And so I was like, Oh, they'll call me back on Monday, Mm -hmm. you know, or in, in a couple of days. I no sooner had I like hit the hang up button than she was calling me back. Like, what is going on? Like, talk to me. And so I'm so grateful for midwife care for that aspect because I do not to like play a OB versus midwife like game, but I do feel like the compassion and the timeliness and just like being there with you in that moment is so different for midwife care than it is with like normal medical care. 
Like she was like, you know, I have all the time in the world. Like, let's sit down. Let's go through everything emotionally. Let's see what are the problems we can fix right now before we can get you into counseling or get you in to see somebody. Mm-hmm. And like just in that one conversation, she was like, okay, you know, I think one thing is you need help sleeping. I think you need a really good night's sleep over that next couple of days. And you need somebody that's going to be there with you that can help you with the baby to make sure that you can sleep and to make sure, you know, that you're not drinking and you can kind of reset before we get you into free counseling that thankfully Vanderbilt offered mm-hmm. um, specific to postpartum. It's like with a social worker and they have like a set up kind of partnership with the psychiatric clinic that they have as well. So like within 48 hours, I was able to see somebody who was able to like seriously screen me for suicide and seriously screen me for substance abuse disorder and like set up, you know, counseling every 48 hours, telehealth as I needed it. Like Mm -hmm. I was just so grateful and surprised at how timely they could be with things like that. And that's so important. Hannah, is that a resource um, that's just available for people who deliver at Vanderbilt, or is that for everybody? Do you I want to say it's anybody that used like the Vanderbilt Birth Center, what right. used to be Baby and Co., uh-huh. and then also anybody that delivered. I think they have like um, the Vandy Midwives or any Vanderbilt, yeah, affiliated. Yeah, I feel like anything that's Vanderbilt affiliated, they were still Baby and Co. Right. at that time. But I feel like even since being absorbed into Vanderbilt, they would still have that service yeah. because even okay. after. When I was pregnant with my son and I would slash my postpartum period with my daughter because Mm -hmm. she was nine months when I found out I was pregnant again, um, I was still attending the counseling. Like I attended the counseling basically until I delivered him. So it was almost a full year and it was still free that entire time. Yeah. Okay. Um, And it was So I'll include that in the show notes for anybody that's interested because that's a really great resource. And they also set me up with other resources like to continue on with like more professional counseling that was long-term. They were really good with that too. Yeah, okay. Okay. But yeah, so that was kind of, that was when enough was enough. Like it really unfortunately took me like being at, you know, the absolute bottom. Like, and I kept thinking like, this is it. This is rock bottom. And sure enough, I just kept on digging. Like I was like, nope, you can still go lower. And it really took until I hit the center of the earth basically Mm -hmm. for, you know, enough to be enough. And like I said before, like that's really what it takes sometimes is, you know, you're not going to want to quit until you want to quit when you've had enough. Nobody can make you get sober. Nobody can make you, you know, cut back on your drinking until you want to do it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it takes, I hope it doesn't take that for a lot of people, but sometimes that is what it takes is, Mm -hmm. you know, being ready. And I think that that's another thing that people don't understand about alcohol and tolerance and building up tolerance um, is, is almost like inversely proportionate to depression. Like your tolerance goes up. And you just get flatter and flatter and lower and yes. lower. And that depression, I mean, alcohol is such a depressant. And we yes. convince ourselves that it's not when we're having that first glass and we're mm-hmm. feeling a little buzzy and like, you know, we can clean the house. But then once you're doing two bottles a night yep. and you wake up and you can't function and that depression yeah. just gets lower and, just and lower. continues, mm-hmm. yes. It continues to get lower and lower. And one of the studies I actually read recently 
just like when I was all occasionally like look at things just related to alcoholism mm-hmm. and mothers specifically was that there there's not a great screening tool for alcohol substance abuse disorders mm-hmm. you know in the postpartum period like we screen people for postpartum depression but like the questions like nothing's related to alcohol mm-hmm. nothing's related to other substances so we mm-hmm. just like almost assume that like oh we tell women you know, don't drink while you're breastfeeding or, you know, don't drink when you're pregnant and that's just going to continue on. Like we just assume that they're just going to continue to not drink. Right. When in reality, a lot of women are relying so heavily on drinking wine mm-hmm. and drinking, you know, other types of alcohol to cope. Mm-hmm. And so there was a study that showed that just asking those questions and developing like an alcohol-specific screening tool was able to like decrease the rate of depressions like and specifically in people that were um, suffering from postpartum depression, but then there was also you know some other types of depression that these women were experiencing. But just like having that tool made a significant difference over the course of like six to eight weeks mm-hmm. for women that were using alcohol as a coping mechanism, or that were drinking regularly, or that had drank regularly in their pregnancies and continued you know into the postpartum period. It was a randomized trial. And I just feel like we don't have that. Like nobody nobody asks. Nobody mm-hmm. is like, you know, how are you coping? What are you using to cope? And it right. wasn't until, you know, I met with the postpartum specific counselor where they asked me, are you using any substances? Are you using alcohol specifically? What types mm-hmm. of alcohol are you using? Like those were their first questions because it was like they knew, mm-hmm. you know, it's like such a growing trend now. Mm-hmm. Like they almost knew immediately like, oh, are you regularly drinking wine, you know, to cope with things? How do you feel after you have your first glass? How do you feel after you have your second glass? You know, what are your emotions? How do you feel the next day? And I was like, oh my God, what? Like, this is like, these are the questions I feel like I should have been asked, you know, in the first few weeks postpartum. And I feel like it would have flagged, you know, some questions. And Mm -hmm. so I do just wish that more people would think about it and think about like how much alcohol affects women postpartum and just like how easy it is. Like, it's not like, you know, drugs where you've got to go out looking for it. You know, you just pop over to Publix and there's an entire aisle full of wine, Yeah, you know, ripe for the picking. But unfortunately it can lead to drug drug use and, and other substance abuse um, issues too because oh, there's yeah. no smell. And once you yep. get to the point where you've lied to yourself so long about alcohol use disorders and other people are calling you out and they mm-hmm. can see things, and this is another observation that I've had. that So your story and how you presented your story, um, you know, I could, I could feel like my heart swell up with emotion for you, just how much fear and probably shame that all of that, might have resurfaced, but from my experience, it's not It's not a super unique presentation of how this plays out. Yeah. Like I've seen this play out almost exactly like this where it's just a little bit and then a little bit more and then too much and then what the hell am I doing and yeah, how do I get out of this? The dam breaks and you're like, I'm drowning. And it can be really severe rock bottom, like you said, Things that you would never imagine, suicidal ideation, homicidal ideation with your children. I mean, I've, I've, I've personally um, intervened in both of those situations and alcohol was directly related. But 
in all of those cases, there was a severe and chronic and long-term alcohol use that the tolerance was just so extremely high that they were using other substances when the alcohol wasn't use, wasn't working anymore. And so yeah, I think gateway, I it think. is such a gateway. I mean, and we talk about other things being gateways and, and you know, all the different debates, but alcohol is like so innocent out there. Like mm-hmm. everybody's just drinking their alcohol. And um, so... So you so you hit this place where you were done and it sounds like you had a very supportive partner who was like actively involved in your recovery. Um what did that so counseling and you had several modalities that you were doing simultaneously mm-hmm. to help um and then you also had interventions to help with like the root issues of why you were using the alcohol, mm-hmm. like sleep and depression. Yes. And yep. so you were able to like get to the root of like some other mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Like mm-hmm. that just kind of opened the door for medication management yeah. because I was on anxiety medication prior to pregnancy, but you know, I had been on that dose for so long Mm -hmm. and you know, you don't want to change anything in pregnancy Mm -hmm. just because it is so delicate with these medications, but that really opened the door to, we need to change some things up because this obviously isn't working. Um, and then on top of that, just counseling for other issues, like, you know, Mm -hmm. what is the root of the problem? And so sometimes it takes, you know, a lot of different things. Like it's not, you're not going to wake up and decide to be sober and nine times out of 10, just be able to do it on your own. Mm-hmm. And so it does take counseling. It does take supportive, you know, whether it's friends or family or whoever is in your, you know, your circle to be there for you. And some of the things that helped me, like I, when I finally woke up, you know, it almost felt like I was waking up from a dream. <laughs> like it was mm-hmm. like you, you know, all of this time just kind of crunches together when you're spending it either stressed or drunk. And so I just like, we took all the alcohol out of the house for mm-hmm. one, mm-hmm. you know, not that I was scared. I was going to like sneak into the kitchen and like pour myself a glass of wine, but like, you know, you don't even want the temptation to be there because mm-hmm. it is so easy just to, you know, have a little sip or, mm-hmm. you know, have half a glass And so we took all the alcohol out of the house and we haven't had any alcohol in the house since, you know, unless Mm -hmm. people are coming over and I'm like, you know, if you want to drink, you can bring it, but you know, we're not going to have it in the house. Mm -hmm. Um, And we just kind of had to change our day-to-day lives. Like, you know, the things we did for fun were going to breweries, you know, every weekend or it was going to you know, events that were like shop and sips, like, Mm -hmm. you know, that's another problem that we have as a society is even just casual things. Mm -hmm. There's got to be alcohol involved. You know, you go to the dog park and they have an event, you know, it's like pups and pops or whatever, you know, barks and brews. It's just always something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. grand opening of this boutique. We'll have wine there. Like, come shop and sip. And yeah. it's just like... And that's not only problematic just for our culture, but when I think about 
spouses and partners trying to reconnect, especially after they just had a baby. Mm -hmm. They haven't really been, they haven't probably had the same level of intimacy for a while. Mm -hmm. And then they start reconnecting and it's always over alcohol. Yes. Then you get into these patterns of like, well, how do we even, what do we even do? Like, what do you want to do? Just like play Scrabble and have like a boring night and, you know, and like there's resentment and there's disconnect. And that's another thing that I've, I've personally experienced that in my own marriage. I've been married almost 30 years. And of course, you know, you go through all kinds of seasons, but I can definitely remember times where if we were in more of a cycle of like having bonfires and having people over and drinking a lot. And then we went into more of a dry season and we were like looking at each other, like, what are we, what are we doing? (laughs) We just want to watch a movie, like have some hot chocolate, (laughs) but you, then you, but then it's an opportunity because then you're like, yeah, that's exactly what we're going to do. And we're going to like, you know, um, get to know each other. And I think that that can be so hard in the postpartum season though, when, you know, I'm talking to new moms, new parents who identify as moms coming into my office saying like, I know you gave me the green light for sex, but like, I'm not really ready for that yet. Mm -hmm. I just want to like connect and I don't know how. And a lot of times it's like alcohol. It's just like, that's the way back in because they feel so vulnerable. Their body looks different. They yes. feel so intimidated by the process and that Just alcohol relax, can like back, numb everything. Have a glass of wine yeah. and then, you know, yeah. use that to initiate sex. Like, yeah. yeah, 100%. Well, so can we just get a little personal? Can you speak yeah. to that a little bit? Like, Oh, definitely. Like the new moms out there who are in that boat right now and they're like, yo, gosh, that's me. Yeah, I want to raise my I'm hand. I'm so glad I'm not, you know. Yeah, so we actually... Um, not to be like, I have a plethora of knowledge on this, but like <laughs> that's something that we've discussed in marriage counseling that we've had to kind of get through the nitty gritty into. Um, so you do feel so different postpartum. And I feel like even in pregnancy, like you don't really want to have sex, you know, during the third trimester, you're so tired, you know, you're so swollen and you're like, I'm just lugging around this baby and all this fluid. Like the last thing you want to do is like try to be intimate. And so you already have you know, lack of intimacy there. And then Mm -hmm. you have your baby and then it's in the postpartum period and there's even more of a lack of intimacy because Mm -hmm. like you said, your body's different, your boobs are leaking, you know, you feel different emotionally, you know, you just gave birth for one, you know, you're trying to figure out your body all over again. You know, things feel different. Things are just different totally. And so... When it came down to trying to be intimate, it is difficult. And then, you know, everybody tells you just have a glass of wine and, you know, yada, yada, yada. But unfortunately, it was never one glass of wine for me. You know, Mm -hmm. I would always binge drink or it would start as one and then, you know, continue. And so at that point, you know, alcohol is a depressant and you're not going to want to have sex when, Mm -hmm. you know, you're Mm -hmm. so drunk or you're so hungover. And so that was never really like a fix for us. It almost made things worse And so when I did get sober and through marriage counseling, we basically had to re-figure out intimacy. And I feel like just in general in the postpartum period, you've got to give yourself a chance to re-figure out intimacy and to say, you know, it's okay that we have no idea what we're doing. It's okay that our sex life is totally different now because our lives are totally different now. You know, your body is totally different now. And so just like using alcohol as like the doorway to that can just be, you know, so damaging because not only can it lead, you know, 
to abuse of it, but also it doesn't solve the root problem. Like it's not really making you more comfortable with the situation. It's just sugarcoating it so you can tolerate it like type of thing. And so we basically had to figure out not only sobriety together, but then also sobriety related to sex postpartum. Mm -hmm. And that's like a whole, like that's scary. That was so daunting. Like, so we basically had to like start from scratch with Mm -hmm. our sex lives Mm -hmm. and just with everything in our lives essentially because alcohol had revolved around it for so long. Yeah. But you know, it's, it's so much better starting from scratch because you get to rediscover you know, everything together. Like what does intimacy mean to you? What is the emotional connection is it in it? You know, and that's also just so important in the postpartum period. Like you shouldn't just, you know, jump back into being intimate both physically and emotionally because, you know, you're cleared at six weeks. Like that's not, you know, some people need six months you know, they don't need just the six weeks right. where they say, okay, you're healed, have at it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that's also just another problem. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just two points that I want to make while I was thinking about when you were talking, um, you know, alcohol and sex. There's, again, it could be a whole podcast, but um, I do want to just remind everybody, you know, alcohol, it, decreases stimulation, Mm -hmm. it decreases um, intention, it increases aggression, and it can also affect your ability to like remember details and things like that. So obviously that's why um, alcohol is associated with a lot of sexual violence and rape. Mm -hmm. and, um, And so when you're talking about your your intimate partner and the way that you express your intimacy with your partner, if that's always revolved around alcohol, Mm -hmm. not that you are um, participating in sexual violence every time, but there are definitely times that it can feel like what in the world happened last night? What, what was that? And so to be able to like relearn all of that sober Mm -hmm. can probably be, um, one of the most intimidating things yeah, I could it's imagine. Definitely daunting. To, yeah. And it, yeah. you know, it takes a long time, but in the end it's so worth it because then, you know, your intimate relationship is so emotionally connected, whereas you and your partner yeah. should be emotionally connected. Yeah. You know, and it's not just, you know, having a glass of wine to, you know, have sex really quick and just to say that you did it, or, mm. you know, just to Oh, mm-hmm. we haven't had sex in two weeks. You, you know, we should like let's let's yeah. quote unquote let's connect. Yeah, you know, in that way. And yes, yeah, sex, you know, is the most it's the easiest way to connect emotionally mm-hmm. for a lot of people. But you know, when it's when it's not true emotional connection, then it's mm-hmm. not really doing anything for your marriage. It's not really doing anything for your partnership. And so that's that's just really tough because there's such a fine line you can skate with that Mm -hmm. where it does lead to, you know, you, you're drinking too much. So then you end up fighting and then you end up not even having sex or, you know, you end up doing things that you're not necessarily comfortable with. And then you wake up the next morning and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, Mm -hmm. what in the world happened because you had three glasses of wine and you're like, okay, let's have sex and let's, you know, do all of this stuff. So it's, it's definitely a very, very fine line. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So outside of your relationship with your partner, how has how has sobriety um, changed your relationship with like with friendships and other social circles? Have you noticed? I mean, how do you navigate that now versus you know yeah, years ago when that's really tough. Um, I actually had I was always very open about my sobriety journey, just like on social media and you know with my friends and my family. Was was that from the very beginning? From the very beginning. Okay. Yep. So I. Like, I think the first time I posted about it was when I was a month sober because that Mm -hmm. was the longest I had gone, you know, since my first and second trimester being pregnant. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, my first and second trimester was the longest I had gone in years. Well, and I'm just going to interject one more thing real quick. I think that that's a really important point. If you are... Um, maybe sober curious or you're wondering if maybe you do have dependency issues, I think doing something like Whole30 or some kind of challenge like that, Mm -hmm. even if it's not just specifically revolving around alcohol, like Sober October and all of those things, but Mm -hmm. like doing Whole30 and doing something that's like you're kind of eliminating a lot of things, if you can't can't do that for 30 days, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that may be kind of one of those red flags of like, let's talk to somebody because one month is one month. So okay, it's 30 days. And if you can't stop drinking for 30 days because you need it emotionally and physically that bad, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't want to admit that Mm -hmm. it's a problem, it is. And I didn't want to admit that it was a problem. So the fact that I had made it 30 days, I was like, oh my gosh, like I've been sober for a month. Like I can actually do this. Like I, I never would have thought I would have been able to go that long, Mm -hmm. especially, you know, not being pregnant and not having a reason Mm -hmm. to go that long. So I had always been really vocal about it. And with being vocal about it, um, a lot of people that I wouldn't have thought would have reached out to me, like people I knew really well personally, or even people that, you know, I only knew in passing from school reached out like, hey, I'm really struggling with Mm -hmm. this. This is something that you know, I've thought a little bit about, I do feel like I drink too much. I don't know when to not binge drink. And so I feel like I've had a lot of really good conversations with people about that. And I just wish that I would have had somebody like now, since then I found accounts and Facebook pages and things like that of moms that are sober, but I just wish I would have had somebody that I knew Mm -hmm. that was like, Hey, I'm, I'm sober. And this is what it looks like. Like Mm -hmm. you can do that. Mm And I feel like that would have made things a lot easier, but I really felt like I was like the only one that I knew that, you know, wasn't drinking, especially because a lot of our friends, you know, are in their 20s and that's just what you do in your 20s. You know, Mm -hmm. you go out on the weekends and you have shots and you have fun or, you know, so it really affected our friendships in the way that we did lose some friends um, just because that that's all we did when we were together was drink. Yeah. And so when you're not doing that, like what's the use in your friendship, you know, yeah. if you're just everybody's drinking buddy. And so that in that way, it affected some friendships in other ways we had to. Um, no, you're good. Um, in other ways, we had to, with other friends, figure out other things to do. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what, being sober will really show you like who really loves you and cares about you because... Mm-hmm. And who you really like too. Yes, as I well. Mean, yeah. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> and the activities that you like. You know, there were there were times where I can remember um, 
you were saying it was in your 20s. For me, I think I probably drank the most in my 30s. I'm almost 50 now. But I think, like, in hindsight, like, that was sort of my... But, again, that's after I had Casey, and then I was, like, re-emerging in all these, like, mom groups and mom circles, and I just thought, oh, I guess this is, like... I had Austin and Bailey when I was a kid, but I guess this is how, like, adults Mm -hmm. parent. So, like, I convinced myself, like, oh, this is so normal, and then I realized, like, gosh, this is, like, this is a lot. It feels like a lot. And if I would get invited to go somewhere or do something, like... Maybe I would do a box of wine before I would get there. Mm-hmm. So oh, I would feel absolutely. comfortable even getting there. Yes. And then afterwards, once all that was kind of behind me and I was like in retrospect thinking like, oh, I just didn't like going to those places. Yes. Like it wasn't that I really needed the wine to go. It's just like I didn't I didn't like that activity. And I gave myself permission to say like, I don't really want to go. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't right. have to go. Like right. if you have to drink to go somewhere, if you've got a quote unquote probably game don't like to, it. Yeah, to yeah. go. If you've got to be slightly buzzed to go somewhere, mm-hmm. like what? What's the real problem there? Like, yeah. yeah. Yes. We. Yeah. yeah. For sure. And so we just. I mean, we had to change completely our the way that we lived. Mm-hmm. I mean, we either would have drinks at home if we stayed in, and like you know, have a glass of wine and watch the game, or you know, watch a movie. Or we would go out, like I said, to breweries on the weekends with friends. And so in taking all of that away, we had like a completely blank slate. We're like, what do we like? You know, mm-hmm. who do we like? Mm-hmm. You know, what what do we do on the weekends? Like, what is there to do? And so it's it we had to kind of force open a couple of doors to, you know, trying things, you know, finding farmers markets or finding, you know, other things to do that involved spending time together mm-hmm. without drinking, mm-hmm. which was a completely new thing for us because mm-hmm. we met when um, I was in college. And so, you yeah. know, from the beginning, all we knew was a drinking relationship and a drinking social relationship with mm-hmm. everybody. So that was very difficult for us. So... This may be too big of a like question, because um, I'm sure you're going to teach them a lot of things. But okay, so the question is this: What will you teach your children about alcohol? You kind of touched on it early on that like your childhood, you just didn't see it and it wasn't really discussed. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't really teaching. So, so what will you, what will you teach your children? I've thought about this so much. Because, you know, they're they're so little now. They have they have no idea what the world is. And so as they get into being curious and, you know, asking about it or seeing even when they spend the night at other people's houses, like seeing alcohol there, or, you know, if somebody else's mom is having a glass of wine before bed, like and we have to have that conversation. I've just like I've gone back and forth in my head so much, like what do I say? You know, I don't want to be like, mommy was an alcoholic, so we're not going to have alcohol at all. Like alcohol is, you know, the devil. Mm -hmm. Like I said, with so many things, like it's such a fine line. Like the only thing I can think of really is to just bring it up. Like I think every other hard subject is, you know, when it comes to kids, you Mm -hmm. know, whether it's sex or guns or, you know, Mm -hmm. violence in America, like there Mm -hmm. is right now, all of these hard conversations, like all you can do is have a really honest conversation and put everything out on the table, you know, age appropriate to Mm -hmm. what they understand. Um, 
you know, you can't go into mm-hmm. all of these politics and things with a five-year-old. But <laughs> you know, I've I've discussed it with my kids very similarly um, to, and but you may hear me say this and think, mm, but that's not enough because of your experience and your experience was different than my experience. But in the context of being a diabetic, you know, sugar isn't like the devil, but sugar will kill you if yeah. you're a diabetic and you can't regulate your insulin well enough to know. And so we've talked about how like there's there's lots of things out there that you can ingest in your body that will change your consciousness, that will make you feel certain ways. And, and yes, they exist. Sugar to me is one of those things where like we also don't really talk about a lot as like mm-hmm. this drug that causes like obesity and mental health issues and gut dysbiosis and all these things that like can really affect us long term. Yeah. yeah, and is also a coping and mechanism. Very, very addictive. Um but it's very it's different than alcohol. But in in my context, a lot of times that's how I'll kind of start the conversation is like some people can't control their sugar cravings. They can't control how much sugar they put in their body and they can become very sick. Um, so do you think that that's a fair way to enter the conversation or would you kind of step in as someone who's experienced alcoholism from a more severe context and say, you got to push harder than that. Like it's not sugar. Candy. Yeah. I, no, I think that's a great way to bring it up. Um, and with so many other things, like you were saying, there, there's so many drugs out there nowadays. There's so many just like things that kids are getting into that I feel like when I was little weren't a problem that are a problem nowadays. Mm-hmm. And so that just kind of, that's such a good just umbrella way to bring it up. And I do think that when it comes um, to alcohol, because alcoholism, you know, can be hereditary. And mm-hmm. so, you know, mm-hmm. your kids are predisposed to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that when they're old enough to understand, like, what it truly is, um, to share my story with them and say, look, I really struggled with it. Like, this is how bad it can be. And it's mm-hmm. not just alcohol. Like, this is an addiction to anything. Mm-hmm. You know, mine was just personally alcohol. And just really explain that to them from, you know, my point of view and how hard it can be. Because I do, I do feel like that's important. Like if I had been in college when I first started, you know, really binge drinking, if I would have had a family member come to me and say, you know, look, I really struggled with alcoholism and this is, you know, the ways that it truly destroyed my life. And Mm -hmm. I just want to make sure that, you know, you are consuming responsibly and you're not using it as a coping mechanism. Like Mm -hmm. it should always... You know, if you're having a casual drink with friends or a casual few drinks with friends and you're able to do it in moderation and you're able to tell yourself enough is enough, Mm -hmm. you're not hopping in your car afterwards, you're able to say, you know what, I can't drive or you know what, I need to drive tonight so I'm not going to have that many and Mm -hmm. truly be able to do that, that's great. And that's the way that if you're going to consume alcohol, it should be consumed. But if you're getting to the point where you know, you're getting trashed at college bars and you're passing out on the sidewalk and, you know, engaging yourself in dangerous activities. And like mm-hmm. I said, whether that's alcohol or whether it's anything else, any mm-hmm. other drug, any other thing that's addicting, that's when it becomes a problem. And I feel like it shouldn't be hidden from people because it's, you know, it's just like sex education. You know, your lack of telling them is not going to protect them. 
you know, all of these things are still going to be there. They're just going to unfortunately have to discover it on themselves. And that's not the safest mm-hmm. way to do it. You, you mentioned the assessment tools earlier. Um, is there anything else, you know, this is just me wondering as a healthcare provider, like, is there anything that you think in hindsight that a healthcare provider could have intervened and helped you earlier? Questions, um, resources, just not glossing over certain things, or were you just really good at like maintaining your poker face? And like, is it? Oh man, I feel like I feel like I was like the perfect like victim for it because I feel like they took me a little bit more seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, just like as somebody who wasn't dealing with this stuff because I was a nurse and because my husband was a physician. Mm -hmm. Um, so they were like, oh, she's definitely got her shit together. Like we don't need to like ask all of these questions, but I do feel like if somebody had like just sat down, cause you go through the screening tool and it's a piece of paper and it asks you yes or no questions. And then they like glance over it. They tally up your score. And you know, if Mm-hmm. That 15 is postpartum depression and you're 14, eh, you're close, but you're okay. You know, if somebody had just like sat down with me and been like, how are you really doing? Mm-hmm. Is there things that you feel like, you know, do you feel like you can't put your head above the water sometimes? Do you feel like you're relying on other things to cope? Like, are you, um, and I mean, it could be alcohol, it could be anything, you mm-hmm. know, do you feel like you're, eating a lot to cope? Do you feel like you're drinking a lot to cope? Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you're shutting yourself away from your family to cope? Like, how are you dealing with stressful situations? I feel like just a one-on-one conversation with somebody that's just like really listening to you makes a difference rather than, you know, the screening tool that you do at the pediatrician's office and a nurse peeks at it real quick and then you, you know you go through your appointment and that's that. Mm-hmm. I feel like that would have been really important and just kind of and this has changed for me as a healthcare provider as well, just being conscious of how prevalent alcohol is in patients, especially postpartum patients. Like I remember I had um, a chemical pregnancy that was, I think my daughter was like three or four months when it happened. Like the stars aligned. It was like the first time that we had had sex postpartum basically. Mm. And, you know, I thought my period was coming, but then it didn't. And it was just like really weird. And I had a very faint positive on a pregnancy test. And when I tell you I wanted to throw up and throw myself out a window, like I was like, what do I do? Mm -hmm. So I ended up having blood drawn. And with how faint the pregnancy test was and how long I waited to get blood drawn, my HCG was already zero. Mm -hmm. And so my midwife that called, she was like, like, you know, how do you feel? And I was like, no, I mean, that's that's great. I don't know what I would like really do with two under one. You know, two mm-hmm. under two is hard enough. Two mm-hmm. under one, I don't know how mm-hmm. I would do it. Um, she was like, I know. She was like, well, I mean, you should chill out tonight, have a glass of wine. You know, you've earned it. And it's like just things like that, yeah. you know. It's like, well, <laughs> joke's on you. I've already had three. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so it's like, but to somebody who's like really skating that line, like, especially if like drinking that night, like I absolutely would have drank that night, you mm-hmm. know, if I was like yeah, kind of back and forth on whether or not. So, I mean, yeah. just being conscious in the way that we talk to people and the way that we present alcohol as a stress relief, mm-hmm. like 
Yeah. I think that's really important. Yeah, and just not making those assumptions. I mean, that's so true with so many mm-hmm. things. But that's a really good reminder. Um, so if we have somebody listening right now, they're driving down the road, listening to this in their car, they're maybe going for the first walk that they've been able to go on postpartum, and they're listening to this, and they're kind of like tears streaming down their eyes, like, this is me, and I have mm-hmm. no idea what to do. Yeah. What do you... What do you say? And I've been there and that's, it's such a daunting feeling where you're just like, I don't even know where to start. Mm-hmm. I don't know where to start socially. I don't know where to start emotionally, intrapersonally with my relationships, you know, either with my spouse. I don't, you know, I don't know what to do. Just start literally anywhere, you mm-hmm. know, as terrible as it was me coming to my husband and saying, I feel like I'm going to kill myself like mm-hmm. that. I really hope nobody starts there, but, you know, even Mm -hmm. if that's where you start, just like opening the door, even if it's just a crack, you know, just start literally anywhere. And I promise you with the resources that we have and we should have today, it can really just get the ball rolling and it can snowball into relief, you know? And if you feel like you're struggling with alcoholism and you just like, you know, you're swearing to yourself up and down. You're really not like, you know, I really haven't managed. But the fact that something in the back of your head is saying, am I really struggling? Really just, you know, take a peek inside of yourself. What are you using alcohol for? You know, are you using it as a stress relief? And how healthy is that stress relief? And if you're thinking about getting sober and you're that seems like a daunting task, like the months honestly just flew by like it gets easier and easier every month like i've been sober for a little over a year now and i couldn't even believe that it had been a year you know i think about what alcohol was in my life and how my life was surrounded by alcohol and i didn't go more than like 48 hours without drinking you know i wasn't drinking every day but when i did drink it was a lot mm-hmm. um you know and alcohol it's not in my life at all anymore you know and I still have moments like where people around me are drinking and I just, I'm like, oh man, you know, one glass of wine wouldn't hurt. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's been a year now. Like yeah, I feel like I'm in a good place. Like mm-hmm. why not? Like I feel like I could mentally like deal with having one glass of wine. And then I just think back to how it felt waking up the next morning after having that glass of wine or having, you know, that few beers. And I'm like, I can't ever feel like that again. Like you just get to the point where you're like, I can't, like Mm -hmm. there is nothing in me that can handle feeling like that again. Like sometimes, you know, just think about that. Like you don't have to feel that way. Like there is something that you can do, even if it seems impossible, Mm -hmm. like you can get sober and it does become easier. And, you know, if you get sober for a little while and you want to try to slowly reintroduce alcohol back into your life, if you feel like you can emotionally handle that, that's okay too. But also think about why do you want to reintroduce it back into your life? You know, is it for a coping mechanism? Is it because everybody else around you is doing it and it's becoming harder to be sober? Just really think about, you know, what an impact it has on your life and why it's important to you to drink and just... I don't know. Becoming sober is one of the best things that's ever happened to me. You know, it makes you love yourself more. It makes you just really become in tune with yourself instead of dampening it with alcohol all the time. Mm -hmm. Like, I just think it's just so important to really, with many things, not just with alcohol, just see 
what the place is it is in your life and why yeah. it's there. Yeah. If somebody doesn't feel like they have an emotionally supportive partner or family member that they can reach out to, like you had that kind of just like stopped and said, we're going to put a plan together. Is there like, is there a resource? So we're here in middle Tennessee, maybe we could just start there. But if somebody is feeling kind of lost of like where to start, like, is there a place um, or do you just have to have, you just have to be lucky enough to have like a really trusted person that you can help, that can help you? So I actually looked into a lot of AA meetings Mm -hmm. and, you know, you always hear about AA. There's always jokes made about it in movies Mm -hmm. and, you know, I had never like, you know, looked and saw that in my future, like sitting in an AA group and like, you know, seriously being like, hi, my name is Hannah. I'm an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Like I was like, that's a joke. But like, you know, that was my reality. Um, I didn't personally go to any AA meetings because I was thankfully able to get in with counseling and with medication management. And I feel like that was kind of what I needed really heavy in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, But I have dabbled into now that I've been sober for a year and I feel like I can have the conversation about alcohol and I can really open up about, you know, my struggles with it in a group setting without being so triggered by it. Um, There is a ton in middle Tennessee and there's a ton. I mean, it really just depends on, you know, who you feel like you identify with. Like there's mom's groups, there's retired groups. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually had a coworker tell me because I was always really open about my sobriety and, you know, getting to be sober. His dad attended a group that was like specific for lawyers because he was a lawyer. And so okay. they would talk about the struggles that came with being a lawyer and why they relied so heavily on yeah. alcohol. You know, there's groups for healthcare providers mm-hmm. and they meet at all hours of the day. Like there's meetings at 6 a.m. Yeah. Like they call them like runner's club meetings. Like mm-hmm. they'll all go for a run in the morning and they'll sit down and do AA. And you know, yeah. if that's what you enjoy. Like not only do you get the social aspect of it right. and you get to surround yourself with people that are also struggling with sobriety or that have been sober and can really offer insight and be a sponsor because sometimes you just need somebody, especially if you don't have anybody in your life that's like supportive, like a partner or family to just text, you know, at 11 o'clock at night, like, gosh, I'm so low. I feel like having a glass of wine and for them to just be like, hey, this is what we can do about that. Or, hey, Mm -hmm. I'm here for you. Like, I'm in this space with you. I'm sitting in these emotions with you. Like, that can be such a, like, good option for you. But also, I know that AA is kind of daunting for some people because it is, you know, surrounded with Christianity and they do meet at churches and things like that. And, you know, that you know, I'm not Christian and I don't identify, um, with, you know, Christianity or any religious aspect of that. And so that was kind of hard for me because I was like, "Eh, I don't really want to go to a meeting and like pray and like be around these people that, you know, Mm -hmm. are attributing their sobriety. I mean, to be honest, some people, so myself included, like I always tell people I'm a recovering Catholic because I feel like like that was one thing I had to go through recovery already for. Mm -hmm. And then to like, to be told, maybe go to this group that, again, revolves around this thing that you already felt like you sort of had to recover from because there was a lot of, like, you know, just emotional and spiritual kind of, like, low-key abuse, you know, throughout that. So, But I'm I'm glad that you actually mentioned that because that's kind of what I was... One of the resources I was hoping that you would bring up because there are so many different kinds. Like, and... From what I understand from a lot of the clients that I talk to um, that are actively part of AA, um, 
the Christianity part can be replaced with any higher power, yep. um, any magic that you believe in in the universe that can give you that empowerment, whether it's inside of you or outside of you. And so I think, you know, just simply knowing that part, you could probably find a group that would be Yes, a group that's not you. like very heavily, you mm-hmm. know, religious or very heavily Christianity-specific religious. Um, that was one of the things when I was like Googling and doing research on like if there was any groups, like I would be like, you know, alcohol recovery group, not religious, because I feel right, like, you know, yeah. there's, there's a really religious groups and then there's the not religious groups. And there really is some like that still label themselves as AA because, you know, that's, that's a specific group, you know, that just so happens to meet at churches and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of them, they say, you know, you're welcome, even if you don't identify with Christianity, even if you don't identify with any religion, like you're Mm -hmm. still welcome. Mm -hmm. And people have commented because there's like threads on Reddit and things like that Mm -hmm. um, that have said like, yeah, you know, they've said, you know, if you want to have a group prayer, we can. If not, you know, feel free to Mm -hmm. not participate in it. And it's just very brief. Like that's just their brief, you know, thing that they do in the beginning. And then they don't mention it again for the rest of the meeting. So if that's what you're comfortable with, like it really just... They've got, it's not one size fits all. Like they've got so many groups across Middle Tennessee. Yeah. Um, and since COVID, there's so many online now. I mean, I'm yes, sure there already w- yeah. were, but now you can almost hop on and just do like a quick online meeting if you need to grab a meeting if something happened yeah. or whatever, and you can find them almost anywhere. So um, another resource I really love for myself, even if I'm kind of just trying to do like a 30-day kind of thing or if I am trying to help a client kind of bridge a gap, The Naked Mind. I don't know if you know about that resource. Mm -hmm. The Naked Mind is a really great resource um, that can just kind of help. There's a book and podcasts and um, online tools, webinars, different challenges, whether it's like 30 days or a year or whatever. Um, That program is really... Um, it's really holistic. So it's, it's, I think anybody could sort of find their way through that. So the naked mind, and then a podcast I really love is called the Seltzer Squad. So that's really good too. It's real vulnerable and real and raw and delves into all kinds of things. So, um, those are a couple of resources I like. I'll put those in the show notes too. Um, okay. So resources were kind of my last question. Um, I, I, I kind of just want to end on, like, is there anything that we haven't covered, anything that you really want to make sure that we address or talk about? I feel like we went over so much. Do you drink more coffee now? Oh, my gosh, I drink so yeah, much more coffee. Yeah. <laughs> and I was going to say, um, even if it's finding something to replace it, like I, one of my really close friends was always saying we're we're like, both drinking coffee right now. Yeah, so that's literally. Right. Oh my gosh. I if anything's gonna kill me, it's the amount of caffeine that I consume on a regular basis. <laughs> but I also feel like that just goes with motherhood. Coffee and motherhood go hand in hand. Um I I had a really close friend tell me she's like, you know, if anything I can offer like some insight. Like if you feel like you need something to help you sleep, like it was always like I would have a glass of wine before bed, you know, when I wasn't binge drinking, like even just replacing that with like a tea or replacing it with, you know, exercising before bed, like just finding some type of like replacement for that or some type of routine that you can get in Mm -hmm. can be very helpful. 
um, right now. It's funny that you mentioned that because coffee um, has replaced that for me a lot of the times. Like when I'll go out and like people will be drinking around me, I always bring a coffee or something with me so that I have something in my hand so I don't feel like, you know, everybody's carrying around a glass of wine or everybody's like carrying around some other type of drink and I'm just sitting there, you know, not really knowing what to do with my hands and feeling very awkward for obviously not drinking. Mm -hmm. Like I just feel a little bit more comfortable like having a coffee in my hand or even like if I go out to breakfast, like bringing something like a drink that I really, really like. So like even if it's not like, you know, crappy restaurant coffee, you know, while everybody else is having mimosas, like I'll treat myself and I'll get myself, you know, a $10 cup of coffee that Mm -hmm. I really like. That way I'm also still enjoying what I'm drinking while everybody else is enjoying what they're drinking. Like that's been very helpful. And, you know, you do see a lot of like in AA people replacing, you know, alcohol with smoking instead, like Mm -hmm. they'll smoke cigarettes to Mm -hmm. replace being an alcoholic. And I can't, not just the nurse in me, but also yeah, don't, like, do that. <laughs> don't do that, <laughs> you know, replace it with something that's healthier. Like don't trade one poison for another. Yeah. Um, you know, if that is what you need, you know, momentarily to really get you out of like the huge, like massive amount of um, just issue that you're having with alcohol, like, you know, whatever it is that you need to get out of it, but don't replace it. <laughs> you know, yeah. don't trade one for the other. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening to my story. That was a lot. (laughs) Yeah, no, I want to thank you. And I feel like I can't really do that appropriately with words. Um, You've come here and you've been really vulnerable and really honest. And sharing your story will undoubtedly help a lot of people. That's my goal. Like, I just really feel like even if it's just one person that hears this and knows that they're not alone, like I just wish I would have had that. That's the, I think that's the biggest thing, Hannah. That's what you're, that's the whole point is that doing these podcasts. So for me, I just feel like talking about things that are really hard, um, they just help you feel not so alone. And, you know, I went through a tragedy, a really, awful tragedy in my life recently. And the grief is, um, I mean, it'll be forever, but what I found like going through like the deepest, darkest trenches of the grief is that it just makes you feel so alone and you feel so isolated and listening to you tell your story. I just, I, I heard so many similarities with just being in these, like these dark trenches of grief and pain, pain is pain. It is. Yeah. And it, and it is really isolating and it's really lonely. So if anything, I just hope that, um, that at least one person knows that they're not alone and I will put resources in the show notes. Um, also, hopefully, if you're listening to this, especially if you know me, you know you can you can reach out to me and I'll help you um, find resources wherever you're you're wherever you live in Middle Tennessee specifically. I can help with um, my husband is also a mental health specialist, so between us, we can we can figure it out if hey, you guys you know, if, you need, team, if you need help. <laughs> oh well, um, but so I'm just so thankful that you felt comfortable to come here and, and tell your story and be vulnerable with me today. And um, I'm just really grateful for you. So, And I'm also really grateful that you're here right now. So just keep being here. 
All right, PYP listeners, that's another episode. Um, Thank you for joining us, and I hope that you will be healthy and be well. And until next time, be kinder than necessary.